Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we begin an in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Revelation. That's easy to find, that book, amen? It's the very last book in the Bible, so you have no heavy problem getting there. But I want you to turn there because we're beginning today the, the year of the Revelation. Now, the more that I've studied this, I think it's going to be the two years of the Revelation because it's just, it gets deeper and deeper all the time when you get into the midst of it. It's only my second time to preach through the Revelation. I did it over 20 years ago in the church I pastored in Brookhaven, Mississippi. We were discussing that with my family. My, Kelly, who's my oldest child, was a, said he was a teenager at that time, and he sat in the back pew and scared to death. You know, I said, well, that's not really not the purpose of scaring anybody to death. But it is a futuristic book. It is a futuristic book. It's a book of prophecy. One of the few places in the New Testament that speaks about prophecy, about coming events. There are a few chapters in the Olivet Discourse Jesus speaks to, our First and Second Thessalonians, a little bit in Corinthians. But as far as any book that is totally dedicated to the prophecies or futuristic events, this is the only book in the New Testament. Now, there are other Old Testament prophecies that are still yet to be fulfilled. Like the book of Daniel a few years ago in the service over there, I, I taught through the book of Daniel. We'll be speaking about the book of Daniel on and off throughout this study. But it has to do with prophecy and some others have to do with prophecy about the coming Messiah when he's going to be born. But also about his second coming is in the Old Testament still yet to be fulfilled. But this is the primary text we have for futuristic events as we look at them of what is about to happen. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you like to be blessed? Raise your hand. Well, I, I want you to see something. How, how many of you like to receive a threefold blessing? Amen. Well, I'm going to show you how to get a threefold blessing. This is what it says in the Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things much, which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who bore witness to the word of God, And to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Listen to verse 3 now. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Do you hear that threefold blessing? You can receive a blessing if you read the revelation. It's the only book in the Bible that it promises a blessing if you read it, all right? If you read it, you receive a blessing. If you hear it, you receive a blessing. And if you heed or do what it says, you receive a blessing. So you can receive a threefold blessing in our study time together through this year if you will be reading the Word of God, if you'll come and hear the book of the Revelation And if you will do that which God reveals to you and to me to do on the basis of this revelation, it is a promise of Jesus Christ in his word that he will bless you if you will do any of those. Now, isn't that interesting that this book would have a blessing like that at the very beginning of it? That's an encouragement that we should be in the book. We should be in the word. We should be reading the revelation. But most people do not read it because they find it difficult. Most people do not preach on it because they find it difficult. 
And so probably the most neglected New Testament passage that we have, or passages, are found in the book of Revelation. And where a person's going to be, whether they're righteous or unrighteous. There's some things that are fearful, but there are things that are comforting. And I hope that you'll be. Now, I'm going to be putting notes uh, online. We'll have a series, put notes online. And I'll also have, be having some links that I'll put in there about articles that you'll want to read that kind of go with what we've been studying that particular week. So I encourage you not to just come on Sundays, but look up online and get that information and study it. And also, if you miss a message, uh, go try to hear that message before the next week, all right? Because these things are progressive. If you understand what was said last week, it'll help you to understand what's being said this week. So we want you to, to have a progression about that and to understand that, all right? Okay, let's start it on the basis of this. I want you to understand where I come from and what my beliefs are. I am what you call a pre-tribulation, pre-millennialist. Don't I look that? Do I look like that? You said, I've always known you were that. What in the world does that mean? Well, those are some theological terms that help you to understand the view that I have after 40 years of studying God's Word of how end events are going to take place. When it says millennial, millennial is talking about the thousand-year reign that it'll talk about in the Revelation. There's going to be a thousand-year reign. I believe that is a literal thousand-year reign when Jesus comes again, that he is going to reign on this earth for a thousand years. Satan's going to be bound, and he's going to reign and rule over this earth for a thousand years. But prior to that millennial reign, there is the second coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus. Now, you need to understand what the second coming of Jesus is. That's primarily what we'll talk about today is a Jewish event. It's spoken mostly of by Jesus whenever he talks in the Gospels about his coming. The second coming is going to precede the millennial reign. Now, prior to the second coming, there's going to be a period of time called the tribulation or the great tribulation. It is a seven-year period described vividly by Daniel and picked up again in the Revelation of this seven years of horrific tribulation. Now, I know that tribulation has been in, against the church all the days. There's tribulation now. But we're talking about an event that Jesus said was a tribulation that no generation had ever seen. Unless that, that tribulation would cut short, all would die. All right? So he's describing this horrible time of the seven years of tribulation. But prior to the seven years of tribulation, I believe in a pre-trib rapture of the church. In other words, I believe that there is going to be a catching away and a gathering away of the church prior to that tribulation time. It is going to be a, we'll talk about it today, a secret event. It's going to be an event where we meet Jesus in the air. It has to do primarily with the church. And I believe that that's going to happen and that's going to usher in the seven years of tribulation. All right, so I want you to know, other people have different views, but I want you to understand where I'm coming from and what I believe is the Word of God. And I'm going to show you that. I'll show you over this period of, of, of this year of studying, I'll help you understand why I believe this is so, based on this scripture or that scripture and how you put those scriptures together. All right? But I want, to be, I want you to be fair. I want to be fair about that for you to understand it. If you hold to another view, great and wonderful, that's all right. I just believe that what I believe is, is the way it is, all right? Now, that would be silly for me to believe it and not believe it's the way it is, right? So we're in the process of growing together, but that's from the perspective that I will be teaching it. Now, let's look at what it says here in the first verse of the Revelation. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation is the word apocalypse. Have you heard of the apocalypse? Man, you hear about it all the time. Apocalyptic now, apocalypse now. It's going to be everything is apocalyptic, all right? And whenever you think in your mind apocalypse, it's always something that's horrible, terrible, awful, destruction, beyond what anybody can grasp. But that is not what the word means. The word is a compound word, and the two words are away from and to cover. And what it simply means is to take the cover off or to unveil. That's what it means. To take the cover off or to unveil so that someone can see what is there. There's going to be two aspects of that revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are two aspects of that revelation. Let me, let me help you to understand it this way. In, in the Greek language, there's what's called a genitive case. That means possessive, what we call possessive nouns. That somebody has something, they own something, they possess something. Well, this is a genitive case now. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our possessive, we'd say Jesus Christ revelation. But in that genitive case, there are both objective and subjective genitives. Which means this that there's two different meanings of what that has to do with. And both of those cases fall in this revelation. Let me explain it to you. When it is the objective genitive, or that possession, it means this. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is going to be, the first thing that's going to be happening this time, is going to be a revelation of Jesus. A revelation of who Jesus is. And it's happening because it is a gift from his Father. Look what it says there. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants. This is a gift from God to reveal who Jesus is. Now, I have some things on the screen. And like I said, these will be online. You can copy these off, but, uh, but you can copy them as you can. Look what it says here. The first time that Jesus came to this earth, his deity, glory, and majesty were covered by what? By covered by his manhood. That's right. Except on a few occasions, the deity was veiled. Isn't that true? I mean, it's the fact that Jesus took the form of man. Here's holy God who came in all that glory. And he took the form of man. And he lived as a man. And so the deity and majesty and glory and the wonder of this Son of God has been veiled in human flesh and has been held down in human flesh, except on certain occasions. For instance, like at the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that story? When he was transfigured and and his glory was revealed at that time. Or in the case of miracles, such as miracles that happened. Whenever God, he as God intervened and he healed the blind man or he healed the lame man or he brought Lazarus back to death. No man could do that. So how was Jesus doing? It was the fact that his deity, glory, and majesty was being revealed even though it was being veiled by his manhood. Now, one of the most amazing things to me is that the glory of God could actually be held in the human body. Amen. I mean, that, that, that a man in a, in a man's body could actually have all that Jesus was and all that Jesus is. But it was veiled. 
We only saw a little bit of his glory, majesty, and his deity as he walked here on the earth. Now, a second thing, though, about that is this. The last time that the world saw Jesus, think about it. The last time that the world saw Jesus, how'd they see him? The world. They saw him hanging in shame and misery and anguish on a cross. You thought about that? The last picture that the world had of Jesus was him hanging in misery and pain on the cross as he pays the price for sin. And you might say, well, well, wait a minute now, Brother Mike. He was resurrected. But when he was resurrected, the world didn't see him as resurrected. And there were only a few people who saw him. His believers saw him. And, and a small gathering of people who saw him. So the last picture, the last image that the world has of Jesus the teacher, Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the supposed Messiah, the last picture the world has is him hanging on a cross. That's what they see. That's what they have. Well, hold on a second. Because of that, and because of that situation, the unbelieving godless world is going to have an opportunity at the revelation to see who Jesus is. That's what this revelation is all about. That an unbelieving, godless world is going to really know who Jesus is. And that's what the revelation is all about. The revelation, one aspect is, is to reveal the glory of Jesus. Reveal the majesty of Jesus. Now, if you did nothing else, if you did nothing else but read through this book and only read the sections that describe who Jesus is, describe what he's like, to help them to understand what his glory is, it would be well worth it if you didn't get into anything else just to see and understand the revelation of who Jesus is. Now, hold on a second. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul spoke of in Philippians chapter 2? He speaks about this reward that God is going to give to his son because he humbled himself. Let me read it for you. Philippians chapter 2, it says, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality God with a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in likeness of men. And being found in appearances of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's that humility. There's that shame. All right? Listen. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those who are on, in heaven in earth, on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about this revelation of Jesus. There is going to be this revealing of who he truly is. It's not going to be the fact that that's all that people ever see about him. They're going to see him as glory and majesty. And why? Because it is a reward that his Father has given to him because he humbled himself to be obedient, to take on the form of man, and to die on the cross for the Savior as Savior of the world, there's going to be this revelation. Wow. So the first thing it says about this is, this book is designed, this book is written, this book has a purpose that we're going to see Jesus 
in all of his glory. We're going to get to see Jesus in all of his glory. Not in heaven, but the world is going to see Jesus in all of his glory. All right? Now, what that ushers in is this. This points to the reality that there is a second coming of Jesus. All right? There is a second coming of Jesus from heaven to this earth. Do you believe Jesus is coming again? I hope you do. I hope you do because I hope you get ready because he's coming. Well, we ought to believe in it because of two things. One is we ought to believe in it because of the promises of Jesus. Listen to this passage. Many of you know John 14. John 14. And it says, where in verse 3 it says, this is the words of Jesus. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Those are the words of Jesus. Now, if you don't believe in the second coming of Jesus, you must believe Jesus is a liar. All right? I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. All right? Then I want you to listen to what it says, what Je- the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. This is what Jesus describes in Matthew 24. He points out kind of this process. He says, after this, there's going to be a great tribulation has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor shall ever. He goes on and says, and immediately after that tribulation, those do- those, in those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not be given its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Listen now in verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That's the word of Jesus. That's the word of Jesus. After the great tribulation, after that happens, then the second coming of Jesus is going to take place. But it's not just based on the promises of Jesus. It's also based on a proclamation that was made by the angels at the Mount of Ascension. You remember that? In Acts 1.11. Acts 1.11. Listen to what Acts 1.11 says. It says this. And they, the angels were the ones talking, as after Jesus ascended. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Now, that's the proclamation of the angels. The proclamation of the angels. He said, he's ascended right before them, went into glory. And they're sitting there. I would have been too, looking up in the air like, where is he? Where did he go? And the angels came and said, why are y'all standing here? Why are you standing here? The same Jesus that says has been taken up in the very same way he's going to come, in that same way he is going to appear. In other words, what they were saying to them, there is the second coming. There is going to be this second coming of Jesus. I hope you know that in your heart. I hope that you, you get that in your mind. Now, let's talk about the second coming for a minute. The second coming is primarily what Jesus talked about. And it's also primarily what the revelation deals with. But the second coming of Jesus is primarily a Jewish event. All right? It's a Jewish event. It's a Jewish event where the Messiah 
returns as King of kings and Lord of lords, not as the humble suffering servant as described in Isaiah 53. Now, hold on a second. The prophecies of old presented that there was going to be a Messiah. And this Messiah is going to bring peace on the earth and he would reign over this world. But it also points a picture that in Isaiah 53, there's one who's coming who's going to be the suffering servant, who's going to pay the price for sin. All right? Now, this event of the second coming is when Jesus comes in all his glory as Lord of lords and King of kings. That's what the Jews have been looking for. That's what they've been longing for. That's what they want. They want a Messiah who comes and rules and reigns and is victorious and who sets them free. All right? But they really weren't looking so much for the Messiah being a suffering servant. Matter of fact, that is the Jewish struggle. The Jews struggle with Jesus for this reason. They do not see the suffering servant as being the Messiah. All right? They just can't, they can't grasp that. They can't grasp that someone would be the suffering servant and is also the Messiah. They're expecting two totally different people. And because when Jesus came the first time as suffering servant and he didn't bring peace in the world, the Jews reject him. A couple of years ago, Lynn and I were, were uh, touring the Holy Land and the man who was our guide was a Jew but not a believer. Now, he knew the Bible better than most of us, all right? But whenever we asked him and confronted him about why he was not a believer, he said this. He said, when the Messiah comes, there will be peace on the earth for the Jew. And we have no peace. We have no peace. All right? Talking about nationally. And we said, well, we tried to talk to him about that. But he, he basically came down to this. When the Messiah brings peace, then I will, bring, I will believe in the Messiah. And we tried to help him understand, well, Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And when he comes, he's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. And you'll see him as Messiah. If he comes and he is the one who brings peace, then we will believe him then. That is the Jewish struggle. Suffering servant, Messiah. See, what we understand is this. The same Jesus, the same Jesus who was at one time in his first advent, the suffering servant, who came as suffering servant, is also the Messiah who is king of kings and lord of lords when he comes in the second advent, his second coming. And at that second coming, the world will see and the world will know that he is truly Lord of lords and king of kings. Now, the one thing the Jews have got ahead of us is they're going to have a real revival time and an opportunity, we'll see, for them to respond where they're not responding to the gospel right now. They're going to have an opportunity to respond to the gospel, and many of them are going to be saved. There are 144,000 witnesses that are evangelists who are Jews. They're the two witnesses. There's going to be an outpouring of those Jews being saved in tribulation time. It's going to be a marvelous thing for the Jews. But hold on a second. Unless you're a Jew and you're a Gentile, I'm here to tell you, your hope's right now. Your hope is right now, unless you're a person who's never heard the gospel, then you'll have hope then. But if you've heard the gospel of Christ, and I'm going to tell you, if you've been here, you've heard the gospel. If you live right now and you've heard the gospel, now is your time. 
Whenever, if you wait for, if you wait for the rapture and you, and you wait for the second coming, and you wait for the tribulation time, it will be too late for you. I'll show you that in just a minute. Matter of fact, it's, a, it's some verses I want you to read every day. Between now and whenever we get through with the revelation, you need to read that in your heart and understand that. Well, that's the second coming is this Jewish event where Jesus is going to come. He's going to discipline the world. He's going to judge the world for their unbelief, for their sin. He's going to cast the enemies away and the unbelieving away. And he's going to reveal himself as king of kings and lord of lords to the Jew. But the second event about his coming is called the rapture. All right? There's two aspects of the second coming. One of those second coming is where he's going to come back to earth. He's going to set up his millennial reign. That's the second coming we've been talking about, primarily a Jewish event. But prior to that time, there is something described in the Bible by Jesus called the rapture of the church. Now, the word rapture is not there, but I'll show you how they got the word rapture. But the aspect of the rapture of the church is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. If you've ever been to a funeral very often, they'll read that passage about the dead in Christ shall rise first and everything I want you to primarily focus just on verse 17. It's up on the board. Listen to what it says. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Paul says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, here's an interesting thing about that. This is a message from Paul to the Thessalonian church. All right? So this aspect of the rapture or the being caught away is a church event. It is something that happens to the church. All right? Not, it's not the second coming. It's distinctly different. Jesus is not going to come and put his feet on this earth till the second coming. But Jesus is going to come, he's going to call the church, and the church is going to meet him in the air. All right? The dead in Christ will rise first, those believers And those of us who are believers and alive, we will be raptured with him. Now, how'd they get the word rapture? Well, the word caught up, that word caught up in the air, the word caught up in the Latin translation is rapier, R-A-P-E-R-E. And what they did when they translated, they just took rapier and they used the word rapture, all right? It's where we get the word rapture from. So rapture is this catching up, the catching up of the church. Now, the church is a unique organism. I didn't say organization. It is an organism. It's the body of Christ, right? So let's talk about it, about the church for just a moment. The rapture of the church. Who established the church? Matthew 16, it says that Jesus established the church. Hold on a second. The church did not exist in the Old Testament time. You got that? There was no church back then. That was the Jews and the temple and sacrificial worship, all of that. The church did not exist until Jesus established the church. In Matthew 16, 18, it says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Who built the church? Who established the church? Jesus. So we know when the church started. It started with Jesus, all right? Now, the church is made up of believers in Jesus 
from Jews to every Gentile nation, every tongue, every nation, there will be somebody who's a believer in Christ, all right? And the church are those people, whether Jews or Gentiles, who have believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as Savior of their life. They put their faith and their trust in Jesus. And whenever they put their faith and trust in Jesus, they become a part of the church. Not just the local body of the church, but the universal church. The universal church are all believers in Jesus, no matter what nationality, no matter what denomination. They just believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They are the church. And the church is functioning right now as the body of Christ. We're also called the bride of Christ, all right? The body of Christ to carry on the work and the bride of Christ who awaits the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. And we are waiting for the bridegroom to appear so we can have the marriage of the lamb to the bride. All right? The church is unique. It is different from the Jews. It's different from anything else. It is unique. Now, the church will exist until the world in this world until the rapture. You got it? The church will exist here until the rapture, which is an instantaneous secret gathering of believers to be with Jesus. Now, Jesus describes that in Matthew 24, 40 to 41. Many of you have read that. If you ever saw The Thief in the Night or any of those movies, it's that that there'll be two in the fields and one will be gone and the other will be left. There are two at the grinding wheel. One will be gone and one will be left. Some event takes place that just immediately somebody's gone. They've been caught away. They've been gathered away. That's the rapture of the church. The reality of the rapture in the Revelation, this book of the Revelation, is this fact that the church in the book of the Revelation is only mentioned in chapters 1 through 3. Now, what you say, well, how does the rapture play? Because I told you the revelation is primarily about the second coming, about all the events of Jesus' second coming and tribulation, all those things. So what about the rapture? It points out that the church is only found in chapters 1 through 3, and it's mentioned 18 times, 18 times the church. But after chapter 3, whenever you begin to look in heaven... And whenever you began to focus on chapters 6 through 18, which have to do with what's going on in the world, you will not find the church. You do not find the church. The events that are happening in chapters 6 through 18 are taking place on an earth unoccupied by the church. The church is with Jesus in heaven while the events of the great tribulation take place. Bless God Praise God. Now, if you don't say that, and thank God, you just don't know what it says about the Great Tribulation. Wait till we get there. Whenever you find out what's happening in the Great Tribulation, you're going to say, thank God. And, and you might say, well, I'm become a pre-trib person too, amen, bless God. You, you say, well, yeah, Brother Matt, but there's some people who think we'll go through Tribulation. Well, then why in the world would Paul have said in 1 Thessalonians, comfort yourself with these words? If I read about the tribulation and, and, and I found out I'm going through it, I wouldn't be real comforted by that. The only comfort I have is the church is going to be raptured out of that because that's going to be the end of the church. Jesus starts the church and Jesus comes and takes his bride home. All right? 
And the church is no longer in the world when the great tribulation and when the second coming happens. You know what happens to the church in the second coming? We come with him. We get to ride on a white horse. Some of you have never ridden a horse. You will. You will. Well, that's where we will be. We will be with Jesus. Now, I'm here to tell you, I'm glad I'm part of the church. All right? Now, hold on a second. That's just the first aspect of the revelation. This is a revelation, a revelation of who Jesus is, of who Jesus is to the world, unveiling his glory. But there's a second genitive. The second genitive is called a subjective genitive, which means it's this. It's not just the revelation of who Jesus is, but it's the revelation by Jesus. In other words, it's, it's Jesus' revelation of what Jesus is going to reveal to the bondservants and reveal to John that's going to take place not so far. He's going to reveal some things. So it's talking about a futuristic event. It's talking about future events. Jesus is going to be revealing to John about events that are going to take place. They're going to take place. Now, there is the revealing by Jesus as it relates to future events. The word, have you ever heard the word apocrypha? Have you heard of apocrypha? If you've ever read, uh, looked at a Catholic Bible, the Catholic Bible will have a section of books called the apocrypha. And what that really means, those books are, are not a part of the canon, what we consider the canon of Scripture, because they, they are other books, are the books that were hidden or sealed. That were hidden or sealed. Okay, that's what apocrypha means. The word apocrypha means to hide or to seal. Now, here's an interesting thing. Daniel is the one who first begins to talk about this, the second coming and all the events going to happen with the Jews. And, and if you read Daniel, and we went through that study, Daniel tells about the history of, of the world as it's going to take place between when he lived and, and when Jesus comes. You remember he had that, he had that statue there and it, when he interpreted it, Nebuchadnezzar interpreted it, he said there's going to be four great kingdoms. You remember that? And, and, that, and it, that statue represented it. He said first going to be Babylon, then there's going to be the Medo-Persians, then there's going to be the Greeks, and then finally the Romans. He said that hundreds of years before that ever took place. But it happened just like Daniel said. Every one of those things took place just like Daniel said. Hundreds of years before it ever took place. He describes in vivid detail Alexander the Great. You ever heard of him? He describes in great detail how Alexander the Great would, would conquer in just a short time the known world. And how he would die at an early age and be divided between four of his generals. That's all in the book of Daniel. I'm here to tell you, if you haven't studied the book of Daniel, you need to go back to that series. I, I preached it in the other, the other service about three years ago. You need to get that series and, and listen to it. Because I'll tell you what Daniel says. But here's the interesting thing. Daniel reveals all these things are going to happen up to the time of Jesus. But he also saw some things that God said he could not reveal that have to do with the second coming. With the things beyond Jesus. And in, in Daniel chapter 12 verse 4, this is what God told Daniel. But as for you, Daniel, you can seal these words... And seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. What do you tell Daniel? The things that you have seen, you are not to reveal. You can reveal those things, but you cannot reveal those, these things. And they have been sealed up till the time of the end. 
Well, do you know what the revelation is? The revelation is when the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ comes, the Lamb who died on the cross who's worthy to open the books and to break the seals, he's going to break those seals so we can see what Daniel saw but he couldn't tell us. And it's called the revelation. It's the unveiling, the unsealing of that which had been sealed. It's letting us know now what's going to happen that Daniel saw and couldn't tell. And, and from the very time that John received that on the Isle of Patmos, we've had the opportunity of being able to look into that to see what is yet to happen. And we're supposed to. We're supposed to. All right? Now, very quickly, notice this statement. It says this in, in chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Now, immediately somebody wants to dismiss that. Shortly take place? Hold on. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus lived. It hasn't taken place yet. Well, don't think of that word as surely take place as meaning a, a period of time. That, that phrase in the Greek language primarily means a certainty of event. That is a statement of assurance and guarantee. It, it's a statement that says uh, like this. It says, it is a certainty. You bank on it. It's a promise from God. And it has nothing really to do with the speed of fulfillment. But you can be sure it is going to happen. It's going to happen. Now, if it does speak to speed at all, it, it speaks to the speed of this. That once it does start happening, it's going to happen in a hurry. Once it takes place, it's going to happen in a hurry. Imagine this, okay? Imagine this as we look at this study. When the rapture of the church takes place, that is going to usher in seven years of tribulation. Three and a half of those years are going to be the great tribulation, horrible events, and then the second coming of Jesus, and then the millennial reign. All of that's going to happen in seven years. Do you know how short seven years? Look at these children out right here who were babies the other day. They're seven years old now. <laughs> seven years is like that. Three and a half years is like that. I mean, all these events are going to take place. You know what it describes? It says this, that the city of Babylon is going to be destroyed in one hour. In other words, it's saying this. When it starts, it's not going to take long for it to happen. And you can bank on it. But it has to do with futuristic events. The reason you know is because what it says in verse 19. Here's what he said to John. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen and the things which, you, which are and the things which shall take place after these things. You get that? He, John's writing down the things that are and the things that are going to take place after these events. It has to do with the future. It has to do with prophecy and what God wants to reveal to us. Right now, we're going to pick up from there next week. We got a lot to talk about. Boy, Brother Mac, you got through a half a verse. <laughs> it's going to be 10 years getting through. No, I promise you, we will speed up. But we're going to have to understand some certain things if, it, if we're going to have meaning, all right? So we're going to pick up from there and we're going to talk about John. It talks about that John's the one who received. Who is John? And where was John? And what was John doing whenever when he received this? And who is this revelator? The, it's not John's writing, it's Jesus who's the revealer. And what does it say about Jesus? I'm telling you, if you didn't read anything but chapter 1. Read it. Be blessed. Amen? It talks about Jesus, who he is. I'm just telling you, we're going to get there, but we've got to wade through those things. And we didn't understand the purpose of this is to reveal who Jesus is and then for Jesus to reveal 
what things are happening in the future. Now, a verse that I want you to turn to, and I want you to write down, and I want you to read it as often as you can, is 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. I mean, chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to turn there, because this is the important part. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Chapter 2 deals with these events of the coming tribulation. The coming tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear what these verses say in verses 7 through 14. While the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The one who restrains the old lawless one, the old devil, the one who keeps him from doing what he wants to do is the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God and the church of God in this world hinders him. You remember that God said he wouldn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if he could find ten righteous men. You remember that? The reason they were destroyed is not because they were wicked. It's because they couldn't find ten righteous men. The reason the world is not judged today is because that there are righteous. There's a righteous remnant and the church of God is here. And the Spirit of God restrains the enemy. If he could have his say-so, he would be wreaking havoc right now. All right? But somebody restrains him, the Holy Spirit. Look what it says, verse 8. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That's talking about the second coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. And with all the deception of wickedness, for those, listen now, underline this, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. Now that's important word. It says this, that there's a judgment on every person who heard the gospel but did not believe it. They did not believe the gospel. Go on, it says this. It says, verse 11, And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might might believe what is false in order they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in Wickedness. You need to underline that and you need to memorize that. You need to put that in your mind. Because this is the truth, my friend. Once you live in this world and you hear the gospel of Christ, if you reject that gospel, then your opportunity to be saved will be over when the rapture happens. It will be over. For those people who have never heard the gospel, there's the possibility of their salvation. For the Jews, there's the possibility of their salvation. But for any person who heard the gospel and rejected the gospel in the time of grace of the church, they will not receive the gospel. Somebody said, oh, yes, I will at that time. No, you will not. It says God will place on you a deceiving, deluded spirit whereby you will not believe and not accept the gospel. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day for you to respond. Do not wait. Because if one day you wake up and the church is gone, you are without hope. You are without hope and without help. So if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, or if you know somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but they've heard the gospel before, you need to respond and they need to respond in this day of invitation, this day of grace. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash 
sermon series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.